Brian Millsap, chairman and CEO of Atlanta-based Black Hall Studios, is one of today's top entertainment executives with a vision for Black Hall that's ambitious, energizing, and boundless. Millsap is blazing a trail through the heart of the South and setting his sights on the future of entertainment. Listen and learn as Ryan Millsap journeys through the myriad industries, people, and landscapes that traverse the complex and dynamic world of film production. I'm Ryan Millsap, CEO of Black Hall Studios in Atlanta, and this is the Black Hall Studios podcast. Why does a busy Hollywood studio do a podcast, you might ask? Black Hall is home of great movies like Jumanji The Next Level and fan-favorite series like HBO's Lovecraft Country. But for me, hosting a podcast is an amazing way to meet people and to connect to the community. I learn from each interview and from each person. My roots are actually in America's heartland. My mother's from Nebraska, my father's from Missouri. And though some folks might think I've gone Hollywood, I'm now just an Atlanta boy who loves to meet new and interesting people. And yes, some of them will just happen to be famous Hollywood types. I'm a dad, a businessman, I live on a farm out in social circle and I love the peace and quiet there, but I also love to learn about the philosophy of human nature. So why a podcast? That's why. Thank you for joining me on this journey. I appreciate you. Today on the podcast, I have renowned storyboard artist, Mark Simon, a hugely accomplished artist. Mark has worked on Stranger Things, The Walking Dead, Black Lightning, Creep Show, Dynasty, Cult of Chucky, Little Rascals, Woody Woodpecker, The Waterboy, and Spielberg's Sequest, DSV, and more. An author as well, Mark's penned his autobiography entitled Attacked, which shares his deeply inspiring story of being bullied and how he got the legal system to hold the parents accountable for their children's actions. I'm inspired by Mark, the artist and the storyteller. Listen up and you will be too. Hi, this is Ryan Millsap. Welcome to the Black Hall Studios podcast. Today we have Mark Simon, the godfather of storyboarding. Mark, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. This is great. I love your studio here. How'd you get the title, the godfather of storyboarding? Yeah, a lot of people have asked me about that if I if I was just egotistical enough to come up with it. But it was actually I'm I'm in the press a lot uh, about storytelling and pitching and everything, and and a periodical had come out, and when they looked at my background in the article, they called me the Godfather of Storyboarding. And then the next article that came out, they had researched me and read that, and that periodical called me that, and and I thought, yeah, sounds cool. I'll it does take sound that, cool. Yeah, I'll take that on. So it's just now become a thing, and I've taken it on. So a lot of people who listen to this podcast are not in the entertainment industry. They should be. Well, there's a lot of cool stuff going <laughs> on in this space, and, and it's a fun space. But walk people through what storyboarding is and sure. how, how people develop ideas around television and movies and then, and then how those stories are laid out relative to planning to produce. Well, one of the things, right before this, we were talking about my background, and my background was construction. I, I was running a construction company before I moved out to Hollywood. And so one of the ways I like to describe storyboarding is it's the blueprint of the house you're going to build. So if you read a script and I read a script, we're seeing completely different images in our head. But the only image that matters is the director's vision. So the storyboards 
are the blueprint of the director's vision. So all of the three or 400 people who are working on that production can see the director's vision so we can all work towards one common vision. And then how is it broken down? I mean, it's broken down by scene. Yeah, scene and shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, it, it, it varies if we're talking about animation or live action because let's do live action for this, con- different. Sure. for this conversation, let's do live action. Right. And, and what live action is, for those of you that don't speak entertainment, <laughs> it's just the movies with human beings in it. Right. Yeah, so exactly. movies with human beings, live action film, movies with uh, animated characters, animated film. Right. So, uh, so for live action, uh, when we're shooting, anytime you're in a new location, that's a new scene. And then every time the camera goes to a different position in that location, that's a shot within that scene. So in some shots take more than one drawing. If there's a lot of action that's happening in it, I'll call it shot one, but it might take me three or four drawings to represent everything that happens, whether it's camera moves or fight sequence or cars exploding or whatever it is. So generally what we'll do is we'll take the big stunt and effect scenes and we'll storyboard those because those are things that take the that are the hardest to schedule and to budget. You know, again, it's the blueprint. Build me a house. What's it going to cost? Well, how many bathrooms? How many bedrooms? What kind of detail do you want? So, you know, an action sequence could be something as, as, as short as uh, the two leads fight. Well, what is that? Well, maybe there's explosions and gun battles and chases down the Riviera, you know. So that one line on a script that looks like it's nothing could take you a week if the director's vision is that big. The only way to get that across is for me to translate the director's thoughts into visuals that kind of look like a comic book or comic strip that everyone can now look at and go, oh, we have to do all this. We have to have this many people and these special effects and all the different crews get together and determine it's going to take us this long and cost us much. So you're clearly working with the director. Yes. Who else are you working with in that process, and where does that fit in the whole timeline of a production? So oftentimes the DP will be in there, which I love when the DP's around, because then... then a DP the is a director, director of photography. Sorry, yeah. Keep forgetting right. who else might be listening to this, That's right? That's right. It is a, for, for, you know, it's like any, any industry has its own jargon. Exactly, exactly. If I started talking about real estate on here, only the real estate guys would understand what I was saying. Yeah. Just like when you start talking about entertainment, only the people in entertainment know that DP means director of photography, which means the guy who is actually controlling all of the shots. Yeah, controlling the, what the, how the camera sees it, what lenses, and the lighting. So they're in charge of all of that. Uh, if on big fight scenes, our, our stunt coordinator will be there. If it's big effect scenes, sometimes the effects supervisor will be there, although not, not generally, but sometimes. Or if there's a creative producer who really has, it, they're the ones pushing the visual and the visual agenda, they'll be in there as well. But it's always the director and I, and sometimes other people come in. So in the timeline, okay. when you think of developing a concept, right? This is before a movie gets greenlit, which means it gets funded and is ready to go. So before a television show or movie gets greenlit, how much storyboarding is taking place? Well, if you're talking about pitch boards, if something before it's greenlit, right? So a a pitch board is illustrations that give you an idea of what it could look like to help you if you're presenting your idea. Well, that could be any time beforehand, uh, generally before they get into a meeting with an executive. Most of the storyboards that I do, we call shooting boards or production boards, and those are the ones that represent every shot that the director wants that they'll use on set. So, so that's, use- po- that's post-greenlit. 
that so so once you know, I'll it, give once you an it, idea of exactly how how that flows. Uh-huh. So, for instance, on The Walking Dead, mm-hmm. we have an eight day shooting schedule, which means we have eight days of prep. They're still finishing the script, so about day three of that eight days, we get a shooting script. The director takes a look at it and realizes, okay, we need to do these sequences in it. So day four of prep, I come in and sit down with the director, do my thumbnails with the director, get approvals, and then clean them up. So I'll have two or three days to storyboard and get them done before the big pre-production meeting which is when all the main crew heads come together to figure out how are we going to shoot this starting in two days. So it's, it's a very limited time that I have on a, a TV schedule on when we come in. Now, for a movie, Yeah, that's what I was going to ask, because I think a movie is a, is a better place to start because it, it's one long timeline, whereas a television show is kind of like a reoccurring timeline. It you is. Know, you, you, go, you, you do uh, one show, one episode, and then you're on to the next or whatever. Right. So, so let's do. Let's start with um, movies. All right. So, for instance, right now I'm storyboarding a Disney Plus movie that's shooting up in Vancouver uh, called Under Wraps. It's a comedic uh, horror movie for next Halloween, and uh, it's a director I've worked with five or six times on different things. They start did you, shooting. Did you see that comedic um, one that came out recently? Yeah, Blum with Adam House? Sandler. No, with oh. um, with. Um, Oh God! What's his name from uh, Wedding Crashers? Oh, I know who you mean, but no, I haven't seen it. But he's—it's a bot. I just saw—I just saw the preview for it, and it's a body exchange between Vince Vaughn. Okay, mm-hmm. Vince Vaughn. There we go. So between Vince Vaughn and a girl I didn't recognize, but it looks like a hilarious premise where Vince Vaughn is a serial killer, and he comes to kill this girl, and somehow they get—they swap bodies, and so oh. now he's a serial killer. And it's called Freaky. I love that. I love when the producers come up with uh, answers for me like <laughs> Thank that. Thank you. So this, this movie is called Freaky. And, uh, and now this serial killer is trapped in the body of one of his victims. But he's still a serial killer. Nice. So it, it, okay. That was the first time I've seen a funny horror movie in a long, long time. I mean, what, what was the one, there's, Scream, that was so big years yeah, and years yeah. ago? There, yeah. There's, there, luckily, there's been a few, and, and there's more coming out, especially now with Netflix and Amazon pumping out so much production. We've got a lot more coming out. Uh, but anyway, I interrupt. But, tell, me, tell us about this right, funny. So, so for Under Wraps, we start shooting in about the time we're recording this in about three weeks. And uh, they just started prep four and, a half, uh, four and a half weeks out. They started prep, so a week and a half ago. So half a week into that, the director knew what he needed. And he had written the script, so he knew it anyway. So I started a week ago on doing the storyboards. And on this, I'll have between two and three weeks to finish storyboarding so that they have everything about two weeks, one to two weeks before they start shooting. They've got everything they need to finish doing their planning and scheduling and, and putting together the elements they need for the big stunts and, and effect scenes. Do they need the storyboards before they can build the sets? No. Uh, the, although sometimes, depending on what the director wants to see, the storyboards will affect how they build elements of the set. I, I always ask for uh, set designs or location photos, cast shots, all that kind of stuff, because then I know how to, uh, how to work with the director on, on how we can uh, plan all the different shots to fit within that location. You know, I don't want to just come up off the top of my head because, because what I come up with might not be practical depending on what the location is. And the location will also inspire, oh, it'd be really cool to do this shot. If, so, for instance, there's this one sequence 
where we have uh, the bad guy. And I'm not giving anything away here. The bad guy is chasing someone, and I saw this really great-looking chandelier. I said, well, let's have the bad guy knock that chandelier so it's swinging. Let's bring the camera up next to the ceiling, looking past the swinging chandelier as he's approaching his victim. And the director's like, oh, yeah, I love that shot. You know, so it's almost always exactly the director's vision, but my job is to take the director's vision and plus it where possible. So it doesn't become my breakdowns, but my expertise helps the director on plussing as much as possible. Yeah, you're one of his key guys in yeah. trying to figure out how to tell the story. Exactly. So that's his main job. If you're the director, your primary job is how do I actually convey the feelings and the messages of this story to the people watching. Yeah, there's two main things with the director. It's one, it's visually how am I going to tell the story, and two, it's working with the actors to have them emote how he sees or she sees the story. And so the director has to sit down with the script at the beginning, mm -hmm. and he then starts pulling his key members in, which you're going to be one of the early members yep. um, in, a, in a movie sequence. And then he's got to lay out the vision and then translate that vision into a series of shots, series of scenes, mm -hmm. series of storyboards, and a whole bunch of sets. And then the locations guys get involved, obviously, right? Yeah. Because you might draw something, then they got to find that location if, they, if they're not going to build the set. Right. Or times like right now, there's a sequence that is a, needs a very specific location. They're not going to build it. They're going to use an existing, existing place. So the director and I had to put off working on those until they found a location so that we can actually plan and make use of the elements that are there for all the scares and stunts and everything that has to happen. Because the storyboarding at that point is so practical. It's not just vision. It's not like you're storyboarding and then saying, this is what we need to find. Yeah. In fact, this is where my background in construction helps so much because I can look at a blueprint and I know what it's going to be like in 3D and how to move through it. And because I've been in the industry so long and I also direct a lot of things, when a director says, I want a long shot on this or put a 10 on that, I know what he means. You know, a long shot means a long lens. So it mm -hmm. flattens everything. You don't see very wide. It's all very narrow. Uh, even if people are 10 feet apart, they look right next to each other. If they say a 10, that means a 10 millimeter ultra wide lens, right? So you see a whole lot. So, so I have to know all the lingo of the director and then I have to be able to draw it. So it actually visually represents because uh, one of the things that's really fun, uh, I have a bunch of videos on YouTube. Uh, if you just look up my name and storyboard comparisons, you'll find a bunch of them where I'll edit my storyboards and animatics. And animatic is just a video storyboard where I put timing to what I illustrate. And I'll edit that along with the final cut on a lot of the shows that I work on. And it's so cool to see how exact it is. And it's because I've done this so long, I know how to get in the director's head. So I'm illustrating the director's vision, and, it's, and I love just being able to see how accurate I've been able to get to what they saw in their head, because what you see on the screen is what they saw in their head. And if I drew that, I did my job. Does anything bring you more joy than creativity? Telling story, I mean, it, I mean obviously that's the ultimate in creativity. I absolutely love, I love drawing, I love telling stories, I love watching people react to it, and I love teaching people on how to do all these different things. So. I literally have the best job in the world. I, I wake up in the morning. I can't wait to get to get into whatever it is, whether I'm going off to set, you know, like if I was hanging out here working on something or if I'm just at my home studio drawing. I, there's nothing better than what I do. You've been able to work with some of the best directors on the planet. Yeah. 
who are some of your favorites and tell us like some good stories, not like good stories like that would, that would be bad for them, but good stories like about the, who they are as people that you find delightful. You, you know, every director, I, I learned something about storytelling from everyone. Uh, way back when I was, I was working on a Spielberg series called Sequest. I don't know if you remember that back in the early 90s. Yeah. And it was Star Trek Underwater, basically. It was a futuristic submarine. Roy Scheider was the star. Uh, Spielberg was producing it. So, you know, before we started shooting the second season, I'm going back and forth with Spielberg's office all the time, getting approvals and all my art and the storyboards and everything. That was freaking awesome. Uh, but one of the great things, and I wish I could remember the director's name this one episode, but uh, we get out to location, and I was out there with him on, on location because I was doing some revisions on a couple sequences last second. And we had two camera crews with us, and he said, well, look, you broke down this sequence. Why don't you take the crew? You go direct it. So all of a sudden, I'm doing second unit direction on a Spielberg series just because of what I do. And a lot of story artists become directors a lot of people don't realize that but that's a direct route uh you know jim cameron was a storyboard artist uh, um, uh, alfred hitchcock was a storyboard artist joe johnston was he storyboarded star wars and then he did uh, the rocketeer and a whole bunch of other movies over the years so yeah it's a direct route in that and i've ended up directing a lot of things uh, because of all that but every director is just so much fun. Like right now, I'm working with Alex Zam on, I think, our fifth movie together. Plus, I did a TV series with him. And it's a shortcut because we know each other so well. So, you know, like you and your best bud, you're just telling stories and, and you get in sync. Well, that's the way he and I are. And our kids are the same age. So in the middle of breaking down a scene, we'll start talking about, oh, my kid's doing this in college. Oh, mine was doing that. And then that'll bring up an idea. Oh, how about if we did this? And it's just this ongoing flow of ideas so it's it's not work it's fun and we're being really creative and really productive all at the same time i mean come on it, it, there can't be anything anything better than this uh but i love going oh so i was on a movie called the walking dead not the series although i did work with greg nicotero on both but they were completely different 20 years apart from each other which i thought was wild but the director on that was preston whitmore and uh, Preston really liked to act out things. Every director is different. So I, have, I, I adjust how I work depending on how a director likes to work. Easiest way to get in their head. So Preston liked to act out things. So this was a black man's experience in Vietnam. And he was talking about this one sequence where this uh, gunman is running and, uh, and he has to leap over something and he grabs a Viet Cong and slices his throat. Well, unfortunately for his assistant, she walked into the room as he's getting really excited and animated about this. And he grabs her without warning her and spins her around, grabs her around the neck, pretends to slice, slice her throat. All the paperwork she's carrying goes flying up in the air. And, and I'm down on the ground holding my hands up like a camera frame. And I'm going, yeah, yeah, yeah. This great. And I go, oh, yeah. And then he starts jumping across the furniture, showing how leaping over this gorge. It's like playtime, but, but I got it. I saw instantly what he wanted, and I start sketching it away. What would you be doing if someone gave you a billion dollars? Same thing. I love that. How would it change? What, if you had a billion dollars If I had a billion dollars, I've got some other ideas that uh, I would end up uh, funding of my own. 
Like what kind? Would you would you actually just fund productions? Would you fund companies? What would you production? I mean, I have my I have two companies now that I've been running for years. Um, but uh, yeah, there's there's two productions in particular. One, my book, Attacked, mm. uh, my memoir. I definitely want that as a movie. And I've, there's a couple studios I'm talking to now about it. But if they don't do it, and if I had the money, I would fund it because it's a great story. I, I want to get it out there. Tell everybody that story. All right. So 40 years ago this month. I became the first person in the country to hold parents responsible for the actions of their kids. And what that means is my bullies in high school got a bunch of people together and attacked me one night. As I ran away from them, they tried to stop my car. I ran over one of them. A bunch of them followed me home and attacked my parents and my whole family in our front yard. And then that started months of absolute hell. Um, death threats, attacking all my friends. Everyone avoided me. I became an island in the largest high school in Texas. This all took place in Houston. 4,000 kids at the school. No one would even talk to me except one person, one friend. is the only one who stuck with me. Uh, and he's still my best friend to this day. Uh, but we, we ended up calling. There was a cop, Officer Ogden. Uh, it was a cop everybody knew. He did, spent off time working at the school as well as security. So he knew these guys who were horrible. I mean, they, they were known for, they snapped the femur of one kid who saw them uh, spray painting the school. They had broken into the school, crawled through the ceiling and burned their own records. Uh, but no one did anything because they ruled the school by threats, intimidation, and beating the crap out of people. But I stood up. What years was this? 1980. 1980. This is 1980. I was a junior in high school. And um, uh, because I had been, at that point, I'd already been working as a superintendent of a construction company for years. What are high schoolers going to do to intimidate me? You know, I told big construction guys that all I did was lift stuff every day, you know, three times my weight and size. I told them what to do. So a high schooler pretending to you know, to intimidate me, I was rock solid muscle because all I ever did was work construction at that time. So they didn't like it. And it, I can, even though, and I was shorter than everybody, but they would bounce off of me. Nothing they did bothered me. So they got 30 kids together to attack me at an outdoor bonfire one night. And that's, that's, that was the only way they could get me. And they did. I mean, it scared the hell out of me. Um, so we called Officer Ogden, we being my family, because we knew him, he came over to the house, and he's the one who told us about this new law that had been instituted in Texas, but no one had ever used it. People are afraid. No one had used it. So he told us what to do. We had to bring the families in to court to warn them first, to give them the opportunity to, uh, to stop the actions of their kids. And we did. Um, there were four families that we brought in, the four that showed up and attacked my family. Uh, two families dealt with their kids instantly. Uh, one kid came up and apologized, and he and I were, were, you know, I understood why he had gotten into it. Um, the other kid just never talked to me again. But the other two only had mothers, and one of the mothers uh, called me a pussy in court in front of the judge. Kind of told me everything I needed to know about those families. Um, and, uh, and so the, the judge said, okay, you have been warned if these attacks continue you, the parents, are going to be thrown in jail. And, uh, and they did. After a while, it got to... And the, the judge, he and I sat down afterwards, and he said, look, you have to... It, it's up to you to call us, 
but it don't make it if they're just looking at you sideways or calling you a name. It's you know, make it worthwhile so it'll hold up in court and we can actually have them put away. Uh, and and you could win the case. So it's a fine line. How how do I not die? Uh, versus making sure I it was bad enough that I would win a court trial. So it was tough. I mean, we were armed, we had private security. It was it was on and on and finally uh, eight of them attacked me while I was on a date. I finally got a girl who didn't know what was going on to go out with me. <laughs> and my first date with her, they see me and they come after me with tire uh, uh, tire irons, bats, and chains. And I barely escaped uh, away from them. Um, and I, I had a nervous breakdown that night. And once I kind of got my mind together, I found a phone. Uh, I didn't know where I was. I found a phone, called my parents, said, that's it. They Eight of them came after me. Call it. And uh, the next morning, the two parents that who didn't control the kids who we had warned, their uh, their mothers were thrown in jail. And then about three weeks after that, I don't remember the exact timeline. I wrote the book, so I don't have to remember it. Um, so they uh, we went to court, and we uh, we had four charges against each of the families. We brought two into court so we could keep two outstanding. We were thinking ahead. And we took the, uh, the first person came in, we won that court trial, which it's a fascinating story on, on how that happened. But the, uh, the second mother uh, just pled no contest when she she didn't want to go through that. It was, it was so obvious. And, and my principal and vice principal showed up and testified in court for me. Uh, it, was, it was amazing. In fact, one friend, one of the really funny moments in the book is I, I had this one friend, Paul, who was with me during the first attack. Uh, in my car. It was an old 63 T-Bird that I had rebuilt that we were in. And uh, I wanted him to testify in court and his mom wouldn't let me or let him. Uh, she just, she was just an angry bitch. And, um, and to my face, she, she, I said, well, I'll just, I'll subpoena Paul. She goes, oh, don't do that. Fine. He can go. And I walked out and I looked at my dad. I said, subpoena that bitch. I said, I know she's lying to my face. So we did. We subpoenaed Paul and she lit up and Paul told me later he said but mom you told him I could show up anyway she goes yeah but he wasn't supposed to know that no I was lying so she was all mad because I called her on it um so he was there and, and laughing you know through this thing uh because at that point we had won um and then you know the guys never showed back up at school again I mean that was it that was everything the school needed to finally get rid of these guys um so uh, about three weeks or a month after that, it was the last time two guys I didn't know attacked me um, and, uh, and threatened me. But they made the mistake, and it freaked me out. I mean, they threw, it was, everyone cleared away. It was at the school. It was in a, one of the big stairwells. And these two guys, big thuggish kids I'd never seen, threw me up against the wall and get in my face. It's, can I curse here? Because, I mean, I'll, I'll You already them. started, so here well, we that go. that was nothing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they, they, we'll, have to put, we'll just have to put a little uh, disclaimer on the yeah. front of this podcast, but speak freely. So, there was, what are you going to do, son? What are you going to do, huh? You're going to fuck, uh, are you going to um, uh, have our parents arrested? You motherfucker, you know, just on and on and just hitting me and slapping me and smacking me up against this concrete wall. And they said, are you going to have, are you going to have our parents arrested too? And all of a sudden, my world straightened out, and I smiled, and I caught one of the guy's fists, and I leaned forward, and I looked at him, and I said, you fuck with me? Yeah, I'll do it to you too. Their eyes went wide, and they both took a step or two back, and that was it. No one 
ever messed with me again after that. How did this whole process psychologically change you? Uh, it was interesting looking at my artwork, especially as I was writing the book. Um, I went back to all my art, because I've always been an artist. And you could see, as it was going on, my art got darker and darker. And I found a lot of the pieces, so you can actually see the transition uh, in the book. I, I, I've got a lot of photos of everything that was going on in there. Um, it came out really dark. I wasn't uh, talking to my best friend who stuck with me. He said I was no longer the take charge guy. Um, I, I got very quiet, which is definitely not like me. Um, uh, very withdrawn. Um, and and I, what I didn't realize is that I suffered from PTSD for years after that, always thinking someone's behind me, someone's going to stab me in my back. And uh, the first time I wrote this story, which was well over 20 years ago, but it was, it was terribly written, so no one ever saw it. But it was a catharsis writing it. By the time I got to the end, I wrote the end, it was like I'd flushed my system of remembering everything. And I was the last time I had a bad night's sleep. I never looked back over my shoulder again. I never had a bad feeling. It was literally flushed me from that moment. Um, it's like a spiritual cleansing. It was unbelievable. And, it, and I realized it's kind of like doing writing lists of things to do allows you to sleep at night because your mind doesn't have to try to remember everything. Well, it's written down. You don't have to remember it. It's there. So that's what the writing, writing the story did for me. How did your body change? I mean, sometimes when people go through PTSD, the kind of experiences that result in PTSD, they carry a lot of weight in their body. Yeah, not, not, necessarily, not necessarily like they're heavy, but just they carry But that is things. a thing that happens to a lot of people. Yeah. It's, it's a protection. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, look, I was always working construction, and that didn't stop. And it was in a different area that no one, the guys at school, no one really knew what I did. They just knew I was a short little solid dude. Um, so... It, it, that that was another catharsis. I was away from things, and I was in control of what was going on. So physically, nothing really changed other than, you know, I held my stomach really tense. That's where I hold uh, pressure is in my stomach. Um, but I was lucky. I had a tremendous amount of support from my family. Um, you know, I made the final decisions on things, and I won. Uh, I beat them my way. Um and it, and it worked, and they were gone. They were out of my life, and they were out of everyone else's life that they were, they were doing. So I got over it pretty quickly, other than some of the PTSD of thinking someone's behind me. But physically, I think I got, got through it scot-free. I, 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 I didn't gain any weight. Uh, I kept working the way I had been. Well, when you said that it, for the first, you know, first good night's sleep in however many years... Well, it's not like it was every night, but you know, I had some recurring nightmares that would show up at times. It wasn't constant. But you know when it's gone, and I didn't have any more after that. But it, it was that feeling of always, you know, sitting in a restaurant with my back against the wall was a natural thing that I, that I would do. Or sitting in movie theater wondering if someone was behind me who didn't like me and would do something. And, and that was because one of the guys was in, the, in a theater behind me, and I realized it partway through the movie. One of the ringleaders, uh, Steve, um, frightened me and so that was an ongoing thing until i first wrote the story and never thought about it since do you know how it's affected the school well the school got a lot better immediately afterwards um one of the things i had done after uh, after i won the court trial well let me back up just a little bit before the court trial there were four families who i knew had also been assaulted or at least their kids had been severely hurt by uh, by this gang 
And um, the, every single family slammed the door in my face. They wanted nothing to do with it. They were afraid of retribution. Um, I told them what I was doing, but they literally just screamed at me and slammed the door in my face. After I won the court trial, I went back to every family. And I said, okay, I won. I want to show you how to do it and how you can beat them as well. And all four doors stayed open for me. And I helped them on what to do. And then I went to seven local businesses where I know the guys had also done things. And I taught them what to do. And then I was deputized for my work on getting rid of the gang. Uh, all when I was 16 or 17. I don't remember how old I was. It was Deputized by the, the Houston Police Department or yeah. the Sheriff's uh, yeah. Office? Yeah, the, sher- the Sheriff's Office there in, uh, in Harris County in, north, uh, in northern Houston. Um, uh, so, so I think I did a lot of good. Now, what's interest- really interesting, and you'll probably find this fascinating, is once the, this book just came out uh, a couple months ago. Can we find it on Amazon? Yeah, it's on Amazon. It's on Kindle and in print. Just to, the the title is just attacked, bullied, surviving terror, and finding justice. A memoir by Mark Simon. Yeah, and uh, so once I started promoting that, I started getting messages from people I had gone to high school with who I didn't particularly know. I knew who they were, but you know we weren't we didn't hang out reaching out to me and telling me their story of having been attacked by those guys. And they had never spoken about it before. And it was a catharsis for them reading it because I was the one who brought it out and, and talked about it. So they were able to then kind of release their story for the first time ever to me, which gave them uh, a feeling of, uh, of release. So make, that, that was awesome. Sense. Now, Post the catharsis of uh-huh. letting go of this PTSD, have you stayed involved in that space, or has it felt like you kind of said, "All right, that was a season of my life, but I'm moving, moving away"? It, it's always been a great story, but I, I didn't do a whole lot on that other than you know raising kids. You know, they knew the story, and you know, they were bullied once, and we were able to take care of that pretty quickly. Um, other thing, I mean, I did get heavy into martial arts. Um, mm. And I what did you my, study? I studied Taekwondo and Judo. Uh, judo in college. Afterwards, once my kids got of age, uh, they were five or six, uh, we, uh, we did Taekwondo together because I wanted them to have that feeling of self-control. Um, so we're secondary black belts. We tested together. I'm also a two-time national champion in Taekwondo. Well, so, that'll make you feel more comfortable walking around the streets. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so, and, and, and it was great workout. It was great father son time. I mean, it was, it was benefit, 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 you know, across the board. Good buddy of mine who's German. Uh, when he was growing up, his father said, you must choose one sport for the mind and one sport for the body. Mm -hmm. And so he learned to play chess and he did judo for, you know, all his, all his youth. And he says the same thing. It just was incredibly, uh, centering from a being connected to your body standpoint feeling really secure in yourself as you're, you know, know you can handle yourself, your body and handle, mm-hmm. handle people uh, trying to hurt your body and feel like you, you know, you're self-sufficient. Yeah. And you know, there's one other great thing as a father doing it with your sons, you can kick him in the head and not get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Hey, you better be careful. We have judo practice tonight. I'm going to take you down. There you go. Yeah. Well, there, there, you know, it also gives sons that, that very male opportunity to take on their dads. Yeah. And, and my boys are identical twins. 
And so every competition we went to, they were going silver and gold against each other because they always beat everyone up, uh, uh, everyone, until we got right down to just them. So it was, it's funny as a parent on the sideline yelling, kick him in the head, do this body shot. It doesn't matter which one's listening because I'm going for both of them. And, it, you know, it's, it's exciting and frightening all at the same time. But, but it was great. You know, it taught them proper respect, uh, respect for adults, respect for other people because, yeah, we're fighting. But martial arts is all about respect if you've got the right school. And we searched. In fact, the biggest thing I could tell people was what I did was I went to a lot of different Taekwondo schools. And I said, how long is it going to take for my kids to get a black belt? And if they gave me a time, I would walk out. I don't want to buy a black belt. And I finally got to one teacher. She, she said, well, it depends on when they're capable. When they earn it, they'll get it. You're my teacher. You're my sensei right there. When did you move to Atlanta? Uh, about two and a half years ago. I uh, started in L.A. in the 80s. And then we moved to Orlando when uh, it was starting to grow. My wife and I helped open up the Nickelodeon Studios. I was the second designer there. She became their top producer. And Clarice Explains It All, Gullah Gullah, all those shows. Uh, we worked together on a couple shows there. And then I left Nick to work with Spielberg. And that's when I went full-time storyboarding on, on Sequest. And, uh, and then had worldwide clients, but we saw everything that was happening in Atlanta. And once my kids graduated high school, we could move without uprooting them in their high school years. How much do you love Atlanta after leaving L.A.? Oh, I love being here. It's amazing, I, I, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, one of the things I miss most about being in L.A. was all about behind-the-scenes things. I love everything behind the scenes. I'm not jaded at all about this industry, and there's so many things, and I've gotten involved in a lot of it. So I'm, I'm speaking at conferences and events and for all the different groups constantly because I love being involved in it, and I love going and listening to other people talk about it. It's like, you know, there's no way I'm leaving here without looking through your studio. Uh, I'm just warning. Good. No, you're, you're welcome uh, um, to uh, I can actually so, get somebody to take you around wherever you want to go. Awesome. That, that's great because I totally geek out on this kind of stuff. And, and it's happening here. I mean, Atlanta shoots more production than L.A. does. So, baby, I'm home. I mean, this is it's great. I love the weather here. There's no earthquakes. There's no forest fires. Um, I love the southern cooking. I love the people. I mean, it's just it's awesome. I agree with you. I, I think that I tell my friends from L.A. all the time. I say, listen, L.A. is an amazing place to visit. But Atlanta yeah. is a 10 times better place to live. Look, I love that I have the L.A. credits. I love that I was there. I never have to say what if. It was great. But maybe you couldn't take me back there for anything. I am here. This is my home. What, let's imagine the next five years. What are, what are some of the things you would hope to see happen in the industry in Atlanta? Uh, well, you know, it, I love the way it's been growing. I mean, obviously, we've got the whole pandemic thing that we're dealing with. So just across the board, I hope that we can finally conquer this thing and get back to somewhat normalcy. I mean, luckily, because I can work long distance, I'm staying busy. Um, but beyond that, I want more people to, uh, especially in story artists, I'm constantly trying to train them how to use the latest technologies because we can do so much more than a lot of people realize. Um, so I want, I want more people working the way I work because that helps everybody in our industry. Um, and, uh, you know, one of my big goals is, you know, to then turn my memoir into something so I can share my story with more people. I love that. What do you think the best software for storyboarding is right now? Well, it's Storyboard Pro. I mean, it's, there's, there's no doubt there. It's made by Toon Boom. And uh, it was originally developed just for animation. And when I first saw it, because I work in both live action and animation. When I first saw it, uh, this is awesome, but it doesn't work for live action for a number of different reasons we don't need to get into here. 
And I told them about it. And working back and forth a little bit, they, uh, they said, uh, you know everything about this. So they hired me. So I worked with them on how to redevelop the software. And to this day, over 10 years later, I'm still working with them on development of the software. And we won an Emmy for it in 2012, Primetime Engineering Emmy. Um, so it works the way I want it to work for live action. So it's awesome. I mean, it makes me faster. Uh, helps me be better, and I can deliver more quicker to my clients. I mean, it's a win-win across the board. Mark, we're out of time. No! I know. We'll have to do it again. You, you have such fantastic energy. I love it. Um, if people want to find you or your company, do you have social media? What's the best way for them to reach out? Uh, the, the best way is my website at storyboards-east.com. Uh, you can look me up on LinkedIn. I do a lot on LinkedIn. Um, just look up Mark Simon in storyboarding. You'll find me. Um, or just look up my name on YouTube. I'm pretty easy to find. Well, you're living a hell of a story, so I appreciate you coming on and sharing some of it. Ah, thanks for having me. This has really been fun. Thank you. I'm Ryan Millsap. Thanks for listening to the Black Hall Studios podcast. Thanks for listening to the Black Hall Studios podcast with Ryan Millsap. We want to hear from you. Find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Spotify. And follow us on Instagram at at Black Hall Studios and at Ryan.Millsap. Millsap.